Welcome to episode 212 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Esther Massamini. She served in the Air Force from 1979 to 1984 and was one of few women working in tech. At the time, the government was the leading edge of the changes in technology and she had the opportunity to see how things change and have an impact on what these changes were. Once she left the military, she continued her career in tech and spent most of her career at Honeywell. She got involved in opera through a veteran organization that highlights the stories of service members. I'm really excited to share her interview this week. It has a lot of interesting factoids and history along with an interesting twist when we switch gears and talk about how she got involved in the opera and how it's working to share the stories of veterans today. So let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Esther. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, I'm really glad to be here today. Very excited. So let's get started with why did you decide to join the military? Well, there were two reasons. First of all, the honest reason was that the economy was really horrible when I graduated from college. Interest rates for VA loan was 21% at the time. So it was the beginning of the Reagan years. It was coming out of the 70s and it was it was bad. And so I decided instead of trying to like go to grad school, I would join the military. And I'd been very familiar with the military because second reason, my father was a life army person. So after he left the army, he was at the Air Force Academy as a civilian. And so I got really used to seeing Air Force things happening, including when they first brought women into the academies, which was too late for me, but I got to have a small part in it because he had to do things like um, hire doctors and hire other support staff for the women. So he would ask me because I was the right age. (laughs) That's really cool history. And I'm still like 21%, like... People think interest rates are high now and they're below 10%. And, and when I bought my first house, it was, went down to 18 and I thought that was the most wonderful thing that ever happened. Oh my goodness, that's so crazy. I mean, I had heard that the interest rates went up high, but I didn't know that they went above 20%. That's insane. So your dad served in the Army and then he was at the Air Force Academy. And the was it 1980 when women were allowed to I no, it was a little earlier than that. It they graduated in eighty. Yeah, so they first. The, yeah. So you were just a little bit ahead of that when you went to college. Yes, yes. And I was I was very very lucky in that I had um, a really good scholarship when my when I left um, high school to go to college. I was the oldest of seven children. My dad had just gotten out. He was just a sergeant, so to speak. So he wasn't like bringing in a big retirement and and he was going to college himself. So I was very, very fortunate that I was able to get a really good education with really, you know, not a total free ride, but pretty much. That's great to hear. And so when you got, when you graduated, there weren't a lot of jobs. And so the military seemed like the best option. Well, it was a really good option for me because I was one of the first women in 
uh, computer science and so and modern computer science. And I actually did work with uh, Grace Hopper at when I was at the Pentagon, but she was at that time she was like 80. <laughs> I mean literally, but there were no other women. There were just a couple of us and so they were really really looking for getting women in technology in especially as officers and what they wanted to do was build up a different military at the time because they had gotten you know laid off basically rift all the i think they called it the vietnam drawdown so they spent like 10 years encouraging people to leave and then um, having people leave involuntarily and then they were building up with different skills at least in the air force so they wanted to be more technical that's interesting. I didn't know that history about the Air Force and that because they are a more technical branch, but I didn't realize that it wasn't just something that naturally happened, but it was an intentional shift. And I never have heard anyone talk about when that happened, why it happened. So that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, they were trying to go from and you kind of see it now because now we, you know, we have drone warriors, right? And more and more in the future, it's probably you're not going to have the ace pilots as many as you have in the past. And so the different skills are needed and also different care for people because it's got its own stresses, right? So, you know, I remember talking with several pilots that were way older than I was, and they were like saying, you know, like they listen to music while they fly over, like when they were in Vietnam and stuff, they listen to music. And so it, it just seemed very strange, you know, but yet the, there's that same level of detachment there as there is if you're sitting in Nevada, for example, doing a mission. Yeah, that's so fascinating, especially to think about how the military is shifting again with the Space Force breaking out of the Air Force and then even with the technical side of drones and having pilots not in the air, but on the ground. And actually, the whole thing about the Space Force is really interesting, too, because I had at one point was like, of course, like every kid thinking I'd be an astronaut. <laughs> and Sally Ride was already there when I was in, you know, in college. And I remember the first space shuttle flight and we were in the Pentagon and we were all clapping down on the concourse watching on TV. But at the time, it seemed like it would things would go and progress, you know, a lot faster than it did. And so at the time, there were also fields that you could go into which don't exist anymore, like navigator. No one, you know, no one goes to nav school and, and navigates. It's all done by computer. All planes used to have um, at least three people, I mean, commercial airliners. And I, I, my whole career was afterwards in commercial aerospace. And so, you know, I saw how it went from there were just, you know, there was always two people, two pilots, and then someone with their back turned and it was special screens and that was the navigator. And that's all, you know, gone. Yeah, it's still in the military because they need someone who can do those calculations because some technology fails. So I've talked to a few navigators. It has changed a lot. So let's get back to you. Got on an interesting sidetrack, but let's get back to you. And were you a direct commission? Did you have to go to OTS? What was your process into the Air Force yeah. like? So I was in OTS and I went right after a few weeks after college and a very hot summer in San Antonio. And uh, I know they've moved it now to Alabama, which is probably worse for weather. And we have a Facebook group of people who, who were in San Antonio, like people from the 60s all the way up to 
whenever they shut down the program there. And so it's a lot of fun reminiscing and, and seeing people's different experiences. But yeah, I was in OTS. And what was that experience like? Did you face any challenges? I think the hardest thing for me was that like, I wasn't a special uh, person anymore. <laughs> like I was used to being like, oh, you're the, the you know, valedictorian, you're the this, you're the that. And then in college, kind of like you had your, your place. And, and then all of a sudden you're in this environment where, you know, people are yelling at you, although it's not anywhere near like an enlisted situation. But I mean, we were just two to a room and, and things like that. It was interesting to be among a lot of people who were prior service and who were very, very helpful. And then, I mean, I had a roommate who was a PhD in history who had her entire work experience was being in grad school. And she was also a Mormon missionary. And at that time, it was pretty rare for women to do that. And so she had a certain status. And then she was like, you know, no one cares that you have a PhD right now at that moment, right? You're just trying to not get demerits and you're trying to learn what you need to learn. And then the other part was being the shortest person is always really hard. You're always at the end of the marches and and so forth. But yeah, the main that that was really the main challenge. It was very hard for me from going to go from being kind of very feeling I was very special to just being like everybody else. Just being part of the team. And having the accolades that you had kind of like wiped away for a moment as you were just going through that training. After you graduated from OTS, did you go to a technical training or did you go to your first assignment? No, I went to Keesler Air Force Base and I did the Air Force Computer Science Program there, which was about four months. And it was a pretty interesting um, uh, situation because I had done computer programming and engineering stuff in, in college. But this was taking it a step further and seeing how people um, actually used the stuff that you'd learned in school. So that was very, very interesting. And one of the things that I was really worried about was that they had a policy at the time where the top students were supposed to stay behind and become instructors. And I just did not want to have that happen. And I was trying really hard not to, to have that happen. And one of my brothers went a, a few years later and he did it and he actually liked it, but I was, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to be in Mississippi um, teaching people <laughs> for a while. Yeah. A lot of tech schools, if you get the highest score you get to pick your career field but there they're like you get to be and you're like I don't want to let me get this one wrong (laughs) you're like I want to be in the top 10 but not the top three (laughs) that's kind of interesting that they had that policy and that they let it be known in the beginning because you at least you knew and it wasn't like you worked really hard you were number one and then you got an assignment doing something you weren't really that interested in so you didn't get the top ones so that you didn't have to stay there so where did you go after that? I went to the Pentagon and it was, I had, I had a couple choices and I knew that Omaha, Nebraska was no place that I'd want to be. I wanted to be somewhere where there was like really exciting work, but also good social environment and, and so forth. And so I was in a group at the Pentagon that had, uh, I didn't know anything about it when I first joined, but it turned out it'd been set up 
during uh, the 60s by um, the Secretary of Defense, I think his name was McNamara, and he's like, you read about him in history books now, and he he set up a group called the Whiz Kids, and they were all, then they were all these guys with the glasses and and stuff doing computery things, and when I was there, it was a very interesting uh, situation because it was Department of Defense. It wasn't the Air Force itself. There were people from every service in the group, and you were not to pay attention to rank. And a lot of times we wore civilian clothing and certain meetings and so forth, because the idea was that if I, like as a second lieutenant, had some idea, some technical idea, I should feel very free to go talk to the lieutenant colonel that I was working with and and say, you know, no, you're wrong. Uh, this is a better idea. And so to not be intimidated, they had uh, kind of a very uh, different environment. The other thing that was really interesting about that was, even though I was in the Pentagon, um, I was in a vault. So you would come in and we'd, we would take turns to be the responsible person. And you'd have to come in in the morning and all the computers had to have special codes put in that would, were transmitted overnight. And then at the end of the day, any at the time, the codes often came um, either over the secure phone or if they came via paper, you had to burn the paper and it had to be witnessed. And we had like these giant asbestos gloves and stuff. And it, it was really weird setting a fire in a enclosed space like that, that they were very, very concerned about um, spies, which apparently there were. So I'm not not trying to minimize that, but they would be like in the parking lot and so forth. And so there was um, ways to shield the area so that like uh, radio waves and so forth couldn't get in. So that was that was kind of a very, very interesting um, environment. And then the other thing that people kept on telling me, but I didn't believe till later, was we had private offices with like lovely oak desks and stuff. And people would come by and go, you're never going to have an office like this again. Even if you leave the military, you probably won't ever. And they were right, pretty much. That's funny. So you had a really nice office. And I really like that the technology was the most important part. And so they like tried to make it so that the rank didn't deter. Because a lot of times in the military, you can get stuck with someone who's leading and they don't listen to the private or the airmen. That's a really interesting concept and really kind of innovative for like back in the 80s. Today, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to hear something, but to hear that some like that that was something going on. And you said it started in the 60s and I bet they had that same principle throughout. So that's that's really cool that like technology was king and right. Some so a Two of the things I remember that we always did was we delivered the budget to the White House every evening. And so one of the things that our group was supposed to be doing was when they do the military budget, they rank everything, right? And so just like when they do promotion lists, there's like the people that are like on the cusp. And so you want to look at the top like 10 over, 10 under, and see what the differences are. And it was the same thing with the budget. So we would get told things like uh, they wanted to eliminate a certain part of the the budget and say, um, 
there was one I remember very well that had to do with an army deployment. And so we would go talk to the army guys on our team and see if that was really true, what we were being told by other people while we were making those decisions. And so that was very, very interesting to see how how those um, deals were done. And then also to see how, you know, sometimes they did bring in like, uh, executives from the companies that would be working on things to come and weigh in. But then every day the budget would be delivered to the White House in the evening for the West Wing people to, um, you know, look over and see what the latest rankings were. So, And that's all still going on, except now they just put it on a, you know, safe cloud. Yeah. Something that's still happening is just happening in a different way because technology is advanced. That's crazy to think of like how much of an impact and how involved you were as a lieutenant like that's I mean a lot of times lieutenants don't have a lot of responsibilities so especially on like a national level well I remember when I first walked into the Pentagon and I was there with one of my friends that I'd made and at Keesler and we walked in and like people were just looking at us like what are you doing here so it was really, really strange, you know. And a lot of the people back in then, their idea of a military woman was either the army nurse, so to speak, who was going to be this mean woman who was going to jab you with your, uh, in, in, you know, immunizations, or uh, generally a nurse, basically. You know, they d- didn't have any other concept um, because most of the women before then like when they were growing up and so forth, that were working where they're nurses or teachers. And same thing in the military, they were mostly nurses. So, you know, they had that view of you. Yeah. So how long were you at the Pentagon? I was there gosh, almost four and a half years. And then I lucked out because I don't know if they have this still, but they had a program where you could apply to go to grad school for free. And you not only went to grad school, you got paid your pay, didn't have to wear a uniform like when you went to school, and your days were just for school. And I had already started grad school in the evenings, and so I just decided to take a year to finish up the degree I was getting at the time. But it was a really, really good experience because, you know, you didn't have the the burden of the work uh, that you, you have to do normally. And I could also do things like internships as long as I wasn't paid and and so forth. So that was a very, very good experience. And I did that. And then I had to, at that time, you had to do three times. I don't know if it's still the same thing. So then I stayed in to finish up that obligation. And I was not at the Pentagon. I was at another unit that surprisingly did work for this, did work for Social Security and for some other government agencies. It was... um, I think it's now, the last time I checked, it's part of the General Services Administration, but at the time it was in the Air Force. And it was a very super technical job where you would get projects to manage and then also to do some of the technical things. And they were at various federal agencies. And so things like, I remember one of the things I worked on was printers for Social Security Administration going to laser because that was like, you know, by 1986, 80, you know, it was like a huge thing to go to laser. So, you know, managing that whole transition and then a couple of smaller projects that were more in the unit was called the Federal Computer Performance and Simulation Agency, and it was FedSim for short. 
and it's still called that. So that t- kind of tells you what it was. It, it would be like a super IT type of thing today in a, in a commercial uh, sense. So you would be, it was like a, a tiger teams of people that would go out and help a, a, a governmental unit get their technology up to date and fine tune it and so forth. So that was a lot of fun too. A lot of travel with that one. And Yeah. It sounds like you were on like the cusp of the technology revolution that was happening in the 80s because you were working on stuff that was so technical and the government was kind of the leading edge. Yes. I mean, private industry kind of came in and took over, but at the time it was very different than the way like and I remember my commander in my first assignment at the Air Force, he came out to Phoenix. He retired and came out to Phoenix. I didn't know he'd done that. And when I moved out to Phoenix to go work for my my own manager, my own colonel from the Pentagon who retired, and I was having dinner with a friend of mine who'd been in the Air Force and went in OTS with me. And suddenly she shows, you know, she tells me who her mother-in-law worked for. She was a secretary to this guy at, at the company I ended up working for the longest. But it was really, really, it was very, um, you know, it was like people in those days would go, especially the upper, the generals and colonels would get jobs in industry at that at that level and and then of course the good sometimes bad other times they would bring that back to into the pentagon those connections and so forth and i know there was like an acronym called bunch that was the names of all the different computer companies that were in ibm there was no apple at the time and so it was like burroughs univac nec some of them are still around some of them aren't and so they were like really uh the government was trying to be fair so they would bring in all these other companies and not just the one big um ibm at the time yeah that's so crazy that I mean, we could have a conversation just about like, I mean, I'm fascinated with like technology and how it changed and the history. So and, and like I said, cool. I was I got to meet and work with Admiral Grace Hopper. And so that was just I mean, at the time I was like, who is this person? <laughs> Didn't really know until I got I was working with her because she would come on a, for just like a year or so and, and uh, they would pull her out of retirement. But later when I was in industry and I was doing a lot of work in women in computing, and we have a whole conference named after her now, and 30,000 women all over the world meet once a year at this conference dedicated to her. So it's it's really strange. Yeah, I haven't heard of her. I would say she is one of the most important military women ever because she tried, she was like a professor and she tried to join the war effort in World War II, and at first they wouldn't let her because she was in her 30s. And then they finally, when they needed computers, they brought her in. She she wrote the first compiler, and she also is responsible for the word bug, debug, literally a bug there. And she spent her whole life, you know, she was in the Navy and and she retired and they kept on bringing her back well into into her 80s. I mean, it was just amazing. They would bring her back in and she'd be this little woman. And by the time I knew her, she had like little wispy white hair and was very frail, but she really knew what she was doing. And I have met so many Navy men who were on ship, like, like so every few years when I was working at Honeywell, 
and we, when we would go to the conference, they'd ask me maybe to say something or to write something. And so I would get responses like on LinkedIn about, oh my God, I was, uh, you know, seaman number three on such and such a ship. She came on there and, and she told me that I could do this, you know? And so it was very, she was very inspirational. Yeah, I'm going to definitely do more research. So I'm adding her to the list because she sounds like an amazing woman. And there's so many historical women who made history and people don't know about their stories. Even me, who does this for a living. (laughs) I learn about women all the time. I've read a lot of books this year about women in history. And I'm always so fascinated that nobody knows about them and the contribution that they made. So let's talk a little bit about your transition out of the military. You, it sounds like you found a job working in industry. What was that experience like? So at the time and towards the mid and late 80s, they, it was actually a thing where you would take courses in D.C. on how to be a civilian. I'm sure they have similar things now, but at the, at the time that was in the dress for success era. And so a lot of, especially the men were like really like worried about like, what pen they would have and and what suit and so forth but it turns out in in semiconductors where I went first like nobody cared what you wore that type of thing and my my boss actually when he retired uh, from the military actually brought almost his whole team convinced us all to quit and come out um, to Phoenix to work in um, in semiconductors for him. And I did that. I worked for a few years and it was kind of an easy transition. I even lived with his family for, you know, like the first few months while I, um, my, you know, was getting my house. Interest rates were down to seven, I think at the time. And so that transition was pretty easy because I was working with the same person and same persons. And after a few years, I decided to leave. It was Motorola at the time. I decided to leave Motorola and work for, I thought I was going to work for Sperry, but between the time that I made my mind up and, and stuff, it was went through two mergers and became Honeywell. So I worked at Honeywell for almost 30 something years after that. But it's such a big company that, and there were, there were so many locations in Phoenix that you could move around and um, have totally different people that you never seen before or worked with. And then when it went global, same type of thing. So I did a lot of work in, after I left semiconductors, I worked in aerospace, um, commercial aerospace. There's probably, I, I like to tell people, there's probably no commercial airplane out there that doesn't have something I worked on on it. And um, and also towards the end, I was working also on um, smaller aircraft like the Bombardiers and Embraers and uh, some business jets because that's where a lot of the money is. Commercial aircraft, those fly 30, 40 years. And so once you sell your product on it, you're, you're basically on it. Um, you know, there's just a few companies like Rockwell Collins and a couple other companies that w- work in this space. And so once you're on it, unless somebody comes up with a cheaper and better solution when it comes time to upgrade, you generally, it's it's not a big revenue thing for a company. Uh, you just want to be on it. And so they like to look at places where they can make money, of course, and business jets are big for that. I did do some military stuff. I, I did some work on um, space shuttle and some satellite work. 
I wasn't really ever sure exactly what it was because it had like, you know, the gray, the gray project for Hughes or something. So, you know, they don't tell you things. It was like when I was in the military, we had worked on something and it turned out to be for involving Iran. But it was like we didn't know right when we worked on it that it was it was that. So so that kind of stuff goes on, too, in, 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 in you know, in the industrial world. Yeah. Sounds like you had an interesting transition because you left the military, but you worked with the same people. So it wasn't quite as a big of a culture shift. And you kind of like over the years got to adjust to being a civilian. So then when you went to Honeywell, it was like just another job. And right. Not, it was another yeah. job. And I, I always looked up like people's backgrounds and so forth. So like I knew who'd been in the military and I knew who like among the executives had, you know, who had been where and stuff like that. And there wasn't really any women until after um, first Gulf War. Then we started seeing executives come in who had been like captains and majors. And then they came in and, and started working. But for a long time, I didn't know anybody who, except my, my girlfriend that I've been in um, friends with that I made friends with when I was in OTS and she had moved out here and she ended up getting married and becoming a full-time mom. And so she wasn't in the workforce anymore. And so there wasn't really anyone I knew for a long time that had been in the military that was female that was working around me. Yeah, so was that lonely being like one of the only women women veterans today talk about how lonely it is. So what was that experience like cuz you were like alone for a long time. I I'd say until about the last 5 years, I was usually the only woman in any area I was in. And if I went into a meeting, like if we had an all hands meeting of my group, there would be it would fill up like a giant uh, you know, probably 800 people would be in the auditorium. And almost all, everybody was men, mostly, except a few uh, administrative assistants. And that was pretty much it. And so it was really, you know, it, it, there was an advantage to that, but also a disadvantage. I kept on trying to get women's groups going. We finally did get a really good one going. We had enough people to have a, a women's group. And I remember we actually tried when I was in the Air Force to do that um, in DC. We tried to get a, a women's officers group started. I would meet for lunch once, you know, like once every few months and stuff. And we had a few meetings before I left. So yeah, it was, it, it can be very, very lonely. Luckily, so luckily there's groups like um, I'm in the Society of Women Engineers, and then there's this other group that was actually started with Grace Hopper when all the women that were at a huge conference fit into the restroom. And they sat around. I was not at that conference because I was pregnant and my boss wouldn't let me travel. And so, but I heard about it and uh, got got the emails. And that's how the whole Grace Hopper uh, conference actually started was from those women that were in the, the restroom going, this is like crazy. What, like, you know, why are we here? <laughs> and this room was just like giant room full of men. And so we started a group first on email and then around 2000, we started meeting in person every year. And now we have regional groups and so forth. And then of course, the Society of Women Engineers is a huge, huge professional organization. And now you can go to like, I, I was just at a meeting and like people were talking about their companies and, 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 and some people were retired and 
or were forced retired and had like environmental damage to their lungs and so forth because of where they worked and were involved in, um, you know, litigation and so forth with the companies. And yeah, so that it, there's just more opportunities now. And I don't know, do you know SWAN, the Service Women's Action Network? Yeah. So I've been talking with some of the women um, there uh, doing legislative stuff because that's one of the things I'm really interested in. That's awesome. And I feel like we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole, but I also want to talk about the opera stuff that you're doing. Yeah. So this was a total, total uh, surprise that that hit me. I, I've always been interested in opera. And I, the college I went to had a big conservatory of music and, and so forth, but I didn't major in any of that because you know, like, who's going to get a job in that, right? <laughs> and so apparently a lot of people, but um, a few years ago, about four years ago, um, an army master, he's now master sergeant, uh, who was an opera singer and he's in the army band. He decided there'd be a great idea to have an, um, an opera about uh, service. And so the Army plus Arizona Opera, Seattle Opera, two or three other operas and, and Texas Christian University decided to fund this. And the, they hired a composer and a librettist. And they went and interviewed people at, at Walter Reed who had traumatic brain injuries. And basically they decided to tell the story in terms of a woman soldier. And she's a generic soldier. They call her name is Soldier. It's very obvious she's in the Middle East deployed and she's talking to her child at the beginning of the opera is about to turn 13 and she's like reminiscing and talking about, um, you know, what, what it was like when she was a baby and so forth and how much, you know, she'd promised she'd be there for the birthday and wasn't. And she gets hit by an IED and they show this kind of like um, on a projection. And then the rest of the opera is her in a coma and she meets like four people in this coma that are representative, the archetypes of people that you'd meet in the military. And at the end, she comes out of it and says happy birthday over FaceTime to her daughter. And what's interesting is that they chose to tell the story through a woman. And they also, what they do is when they have this opera, they hire veterans to be part of the cast. So that's how I got involved in that. And it was very fascinating. They gave us a trainer and everything. And uh, so I had like a vocal coach and uh, we did uh, performances in Phoenix and in Tucson. And it was extremely, it was, it was really a really good experience. And I'm finding there's a couple other areas that people are using women veterans as the vessel to tell a story. One of my retirement jobs is um, an investor in an entertainment studio. And we have a movie coming out we're working on right now called Zoe's Best Friend, I believe is the working title. And it's about a woman veteran. It's really a story of PTSD, but it's about a woman veteran who is not haunted, but she's having conversations with her, her buddy who died. And she that's the best friend. She's talking with her. And it isn't until she uh, meets with her father or her grandfather, who was a Vietnam veteran. And then they have some healing. And, and, and so this is, uh, it's written by an Iraq uh, veteran and a guy who was in the military for 10 years. So yeah, it's gonna, I think it's going to be a really uh, 
good movie and it really has a lot of it, I find it really interesting that people are telling these stories now through women because in the past it would have been a guy soldier 100 percent yeah, I just went to the screening of Causeway, which is on Apple Plus, and it's about a woman veteran who was hit by an ID and her struggle with traumatic brain injury and coming home from deploying. And one of the people on the panel that was after it was Jody Greenier, and she talked about how one of the best parts of the movie is that she is a woman who just is doing like water treatment. It's not a woman who was like one of the first women in combat. She was just a woman doing her job and she was going out. And sometimes the way the media portrays, it's like, well, women were in combat, but there were only a select few. But it was like, no, women had jobs that took them off base on convoys and, you know, and there was danger. And so I think it's really great that different people are starting to tell these stories and put women as the lead. And especially like a male veteran wrote this and put a woman I mean that it that just shows the power of like how important women were in the the wars and so yeah and the the singer the lead singer who plays the soldier of course is a professional opera singer um and she one of the things she was uh telling me and she sent me an email about this is that she always feels weird about asking you know thank you for your service and so she she when she was just performing this after Tucson she went with a different opera company and uh, I think in Bozeman and she asked one of the veterans there in the audience how he felt about it and he said I want you, uh, he goes, I want you, if you're going to, don't thank me for my service, You, the best way to thank me is by being a person worthy of whatever sacrifice I, I, I make. Like, live your life so that it's worthy of that, as opposed to, oh, thank you for your service, and then let's move on, type of thing. Yeah. Show it through actions instead of just empty words. Yeah. Can you say the name of the organization so that if people want to Google it themselves, they can. So, well, it's, it's an independent opera, so it's called The Falling and the Rising. And I'll send uh, um, some links. I know you can watch the pre, pre-pandemic version that was done in Memphis is on YouTube. They also, I know the next performance, I believe they're doing one in San Diego in May. So for there's a lot of military there, so. Yeah, so I'll put, I'll put that in the show notes so that people can find it easily. I know in all places that they've had this, they've um, had either free free entrance for veterans or, you know, pretty much free entrance for veterans. So to be there. So, yeah, I'm pretty close to San Diego, so I would love to be aware so that I could attend. That would be really great. So I like to end all my interviews with what advice would you give to the next generation of women who are considering serving? So I would look at being aware of what it really means to be in the military. I I know that one of the things that just totally shocked me because I was still in the reserves was when Gulf War happened and I saw all these mothers having to be deployed and I just had two little kids and I was like, no, no way would I want to do that. I know I know they're making changes now. I know they have like a year maternity leave, and I don't know if it's in all the services, but I think the Navy just added that. But I that was really um, shocking to me. So I would say look at the whole. You know, don't think oh I'm going to go get 
you know, learn a skill and get a degree or whatever, be aware if you have the luxury of being aware, because I know sometimes people, you know, they have to do things, but think of what it could mean and be prepared for that. Because I know a lot of people think like you go to the Air Force Academy or the other military academy and you're just running around and, and doing things. But there's a lot of, uh, like you said, you can just be, you know, doing something very non-combat and you can be in, um, you know, in danger. And so, and, but you agreed to that too. So that's the other thing is part of this opera was the whole concept of, you know, I'll die for you. And, you know, this is my vow as that's one of the things we sing at the end. And so people need to understand what that means and not go in naive and think can't mean anything. And it can also mean that you're, you, you know, if you're the person in a, a job far away, like you can still be under a lot of uh, stress because of that, because you can be doing things that you might have difficulty thinking about or I remember just as a quick closer I I remember being in the Pentagon and we would have these discussions we would be doing these simulations and we'd be talking and it was like oh yeah we just killed like 20,000 people you know in in wherever in Russia probably at the time and you know and if you really think about that you know it's 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 hard to to think that you would be that person, but sometimes you might have to be because you've chosen to serve. Yeah, there's a lot to think about when you decide to serve in the military. And the, yeah, you brought up a lot of good points. And the the year after you have a baby, you don't have to deploy. That's in all the branches. So that that is a good thing. That's a good change. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think this interview has been really interesting. I learned a lot of history. And then we kind of totally shifted gears and talked about opera, which I think is so awesome that the two found their way to be in one story. So thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.